This is the London Live Podcast. Listen live weekdays from 1 to 3 on 980 CFPL. If you go back to the 12th century, you have to go way back. 12th century, there was a glossary that was put together, and it was called a dialogue containing the number in effect of all the proverbs in the English tongue. Now, this is so old that number is spelled with an O, and English is spelled with an extra E at the end. That's how far back we go. Put together by John Haywood. And inside that glossary is this. A man may well bring a horse to water, but he cannot make him drink, with an extra E on the end of drink, without he will. That, of course, has been shortened to you can't lead a horse to water and make them drink. And it has held on today. And when we went into this start of the school year, we heard from Western University that they were going to do much like the City of London has done, much like a number of cities have done, and they were going to make use of education, things like responsibility, and ask people to follow rules. Well, a lot of people are doing that. We've got to remember that. But we, we do still have an outbreak off campus at Western University. And joining us right now to address that and where we go from here is Jennifer Massey, the Associate Vice President of Student Affairs. Jennifer, thanks so much for being back with us. I'm glad to be with you. How are you? Well, I'm okay. I'm, I think I'm like everybody in this community. I'm, I'm antsy. I'm anxious. I'm, I'm a little more concerned than I was maybe a little while ago. When we look at the provisions that Western took to make students understand their responsibilities, before we get into anything else, can you kind of go over what that handbook was like? Absolutely. So as you're aware, over the past six months, Western has been planning um, for uh, the return to campus, looking forward to welcoming our students uh, back to London, back to the city and back to our campus. And it really has been a campus-wide effort to ensure that the campus is as safe as possible. This has included um, uh, you know, the de-densification of our residences, fewer students living on campus, a review of all of the buildings, making sure that uh, we have fewer students in any class at any one time. Uh, moving more of our courses online, so uh, only about 25 or 30 percent of our classes have some in-person component. And of course, accompanying that was a development of um, a really important um, education campaign to help inform our students about strategies that will allow them to be socially connected uh, while remaining physically distant. So you led them to the water. You said, here are the dangers in the water. Here's what we need to do. Here are the responsibilities. And I think we do have to take some time to realize there are lots and lots of students who are doing that. But Jennifer, I'm sure you're seeing the pictures that we're all seeing. I'm sure you're hearing the stories that we're all hearing. You've got people in backyards and it says Western at the top or partying at Western on an Instagram post. They're not masking. They're not social distancing. What do we do now? Uh, you know, I, I share your concerns. My, my colleagues share the concerns that you've expressed. And uh, we take this very seriously. The health and safety uh, of our students and of the, the entire London community really is our top priority. And it is informing all the decisions that we're taking. We, we know that um, young people have, uh, have a need 
to be in community. It's actually really important for their overall mental health and well-being that they spend time with friends. And it's important as an academic institution that we provide them with tools and strategies to be able to do that in a safer way as possible. So we are continuing to um, provide messaging to our students about the importance of being physically distant, wearing masks, helping them understand that really what we want them to do is pick their 10 best friends and make sure that they keep their social bubble as tight as possible to those 10 people. Um, and of course, uh, you know, get tested if they if they feel that they may have uh, been exposed. What if they don't? What if you've got people who just aren't and we keep getting these pictures and we keep hearing these stories? What does it take to change something and say, OK, education works for some of them. Responsibility works for a lot of them. But some of them, we got to think of a new strategy. When does yeah. that happen? Yeah, I, you know, I really appreciate you highlighting the fact that the majority of our students are behaving in very responsible ways. I was on campus last week during orientation and was incredibly impressed at um, how responsible our student leaders were and, and our first-year students were as they sort of got oriented and get back to campus. There are situations, um, as you quite rightly point out, uh, where we do have students that um, are having a difficult time uh, following some of the guidance from, from public health. And you and I did have a chat about this last week when, when I told you that you know, there might be situations where a student is invited into, into my office for, for a conversation. Um, you know, the code of conduct does apply in limited situations off campus. Uh, it is a complaints-driven process, and if there's a complaint filed under the code, we always review that complaint very carefully. We'll have conversations where necessary and indeed implement sanctions where appropriate. Have you had complaints filed yet? As of this morning, I did not have any official complaints filed under the Code of Student Conduct, but I will be reviewing that again at the end of day today. And who would be filing those? Is that a Code of Conduct that a student would file a complaint for? Or would a community member be able to file one as well? Yeah, anybody can file a complaint under the Code of Student Conduct. There's an online form uh, through the student experience uh, on the Student Experience website, and a student staff, faculty member, or a community member, um, if they have all the information that they need, can file a complaint under the code. Okay. We're talking right now with Jennifer Massey, Associate Vice President of Student Affairs, and we're kind of looking at the state of affairs right now and, and how things proceed going forward. Can we talk about the testing center for just a moment? Because we, we did hear just moments ago from the Middlesex London Health Unit that the testing center has reached capacity for the day. Is there, is there anything being done to deal with that, address that, set up another testing center, anything like that? Yeah, great question. You know, I uh, was down at the testing center um, this morning and again this afternoon, and I was really pleased to see the number of students that had come out for testing. I think it really um, speaks to the, the amount that the, our students are taking this situation seriously and they care deeply about the city of London and the people of London. Uh, we know that testing is a really important strategy in mitigating the spread of COVID-19, and so it's great to see our students participating in that. When the testing center was opened on Friday, we had the capacity to handle just over 50 uh, tests. We conducted about 54 tests. On Saturday, that, in that increased to about 65 tests. Today, we'll, we will conduct at least 220 tests. And at the end of the day today, we'll be regrouping and determining if we need uh, to make any changes or modifications to the resources there. Uh, our, our goal is, of course, to meet demand as much as possible. Is school set to continue the way that it was set out in the summer? In other words, everybody is, is largely online, but there is still some activity on campus. Is, is there anything in discussion as to how that's going? 
Yeah, great question. So our mixed model um, has about 25 or 30% of courses with some online component. Um, and, and that's, of course, been deser- uh, designed to preserve the safety of the community. Uh, we are at this stage continuing with that model. But of course, we are continuing to have lots of conversations with London Public Health. We're reviewing what's happening um, on our campus in the city and across the province. And we'll, uh, you know, we'll make adjustments where necessary. Well, Jennifer, we really appreciate your answers in all of this, and we can all hear the concern that everybody has over this and the idea that it's just about finding a way to get people, and it's not only students, it's people in the community, it's people in other communities, to follow some pretty easy rules. This is not tough stuff. So here's hoping that what we have seen will fade away and and die down a little bit, and everybody can say, hey, I'm concerned, because a lot of those students that attended the testing center have concerns that's why they're there and here's hoping that those concerns can be waylaid without seeing any kind of spike residents anything anything different about how residents is operating as we close out well, of course, and we made some significant changes to our residence system um, this year. We've reduced the number of students that are living in the residences. In the vast majority of cases, students are in, in single rooms. Um, we've changed the way in which our dining services are operating to, to really uh, follow all the best protocols and all the best guidelines. And, uh, you know, again, we're continuing to monitor that and working closely with our colleagues in um, the, uh, the London Middlesex uh, Health Unit. Okay. Well, Jennifer, thank you again for your time. We really appreciate it. Thank you. We'll chat soon. Bye-bye. Okay. That's Jennifer Massey. And Jennifer is the Associate Vice President of Student Affairs. So five cases yesterday. We've got six cases in London today, three that attach themselves to the off-campus outbreak, three that are Western students not affiliated with the outbreak, and no information is being given as to where these students are coming from. That was asked in the Middlesex London Health Unit briefing. Are they coming from Toronto? Are they coming from Peel? Are they coming from a provincial hotspot? They are not giving that information right now, and we can get into any kind of privacy rules discussion if you want to as to why that isn't disclosed, not only here, but anywhere else. Now, in terms of what to do going forward, I think one of the most important things we just heard from Jennifer Massey is... Anybody can fill out a code of conduct violation and file it with the university. You live beside some kids and they're being irresponsible? Fill it out. Let Western check it out. They will. They absolutely will. That right there is going to be a consequence. If you have your university career threatened, and just by being called into an office, it is then you're maybe going to pay more attention. That kind of stuff needs to happen because that's the only way you're going to get through to some of these people. They have to be able to see consequences. That would be a good one. I'll get you the address to that. I'll tweet it out, and we'll see where else we can put it. been waiting all weekend for this particular discussion because I think it's a fascinating one to have, but in order to have it, every single one of us has to go into... This next segment of London Live with an open mind, okay? We all have to have an open mind. You ready? Do you think we can? It's tough because we live in a world where minds close instantly. Oh, I don't like what that person said. I don't believe that. No, that, I don't, that person is not telling the truth. There's no way because I watched this and it told me or because I read this and it said. So we all have to go open-minded. Can we do it? Is there a breathing exercise for this? All right, everybody, 
In through the nose. Out through the mouth. We good? Minds open? Feeling relaxed? Because there is a new book, and it is called Pro-Truth, a practical plan for putting truth back into politics. And it is written by Dr. Gleb Sapersky, along with Timothy Ward. And it brings up some really interesting things, like misinformation. It brings up a lot of things like the spread of different things on social media. How many times has Gordon Lightfoot died? He's not dead. He's fine. But on social media, several times, he has died. And people just, oh, no, Gordon Lightfoot's dead again. And that's the way that it rolls around. We can't have that. So where do we take this? Where do we take this if we have people deliberately misleading anyone? doesn't matter who it is. Joining us right now to discuss this is one of the co-authors, Timothy Ward. Tim, great to have you with us. How are you? Mike, it's a pleasure to be on your on your show. And wow, I can feel all those open minds of your listeners. It's awesome. Okay, good. I'm I'm trying to have an open mind. I always try to, and maybe I'm a little too naive every once in a while because I try and keep that mind nice and open. Maybe we need to look at where we have arrived. How do you see the landscape right now with the world of information? What do you see on a daily basis? More more and more people are getting their information from social media, which is a fantastic tool. But because we tend to trust our friends and family, and because most of the stuff we see on social media comes from the feed, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, of our friends and family, we have a very trusting attitude towards what we see and what we read. However, when our friends and family are then posting misinformation, we too easily filter that as also true, and we pass it along. And I know, well, my my dear father, who's 89 years uh, years old, lives in Ottawa, as a matter, a matter of fact. He sends out emails every now and then, passing on something that's outrageous to him. But it's false. It's, it's misinformation. So we've got to become better at not passing on false information. That means detecting that it's fake to begin with. And that's yeah. one of the main topics of this book. And that's that's got to be tough. I mean we see how technology goes day by day and the ability now to take someone's likeness and have them saying words that are actually said by somebody else, but you take their face and put it over top and you can make it look pretty real, pretty real right now. But we're not even talking about that sort of thing. We're just talking about people who are actually being themselves and saying things, aren't we? Yeah, exactly. And you have to remember, uh, that social media is being weaponized, particularly by the Russians around the American election, but also by all kinds of fringe groups who write stuff that is fake and written deliberately to sound like it could be true, particularly if you already have a certain bias. Let's say you've already got an anti-vaccine bias. Then a fake news story about how uh, a, a certain company is developing a uh, a fake uh, COVID, COVID vaccine, bam, you'll post that right away because it fits what you already believe. So purveyors of misinformation are deliberately targeting people like that because it's a very effective way of spreading these kinds of lies. And the only thing that can shut it down is if people take 
accountability for not passing on stuff that's fake. And a lot of it we can actually detect. It's not that hard. And the book Pro-Truth gives some pretty clear ideas of how you can get better at this. Okay. And we'll talk a little bit about those ideas in a moment. But you bring up Russia. And we had Jeff Semple, who is a former Europe bureau chief for Global News, who did this investigative series that basically went to some of these places where you had people creating completely fake information. And they admitted, yeah, this this is kind of what goes on here. And we've got information like that. But then you would still have people saying, no, 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 no. What he was doing was fake. So we get into a vicious circle. Just before we get into things that we can do, can we ask the scary question, is there a way back to where we were, or is this the new normal, and and that's just the way it's going to be from now on because of the way that social media has evolved? The good news is, yes, there is. Well, let's say not a way back, but there is a way forward. And let's take, you said the new normal. Let's take this pandemic as a great metaphor. This virus is invisible. It's pernicious. You don't know when you're spreading it, but people can die as a result of catching it. So misinformation is exactly like that. We've got to learn what are the things we can do. How can we do the media equivalent of social distancing? How can we create enough space between what we immediately want to believe and what we're sure is true before we pass it on? What kind of masks can we wear to filter out the obvious misinformation so we don't breathe it in? And ultimately, are there vaccines we can inoculate ourselves with? Can we just plain learn, I don't trust these sources? These sources are usually reputable. And if I'm ever in doubt, what can I do to find out for sure before I before I uh, pass it on, just as if you were in doubt whether or not you've been exposed to a virus or not, you wouldn't go and visit your grandparents in a in, in an elder facility. That's what we do. That's right. We're talking with Timothy Ward, co-author of Pro-Truth, A Practical Plan for Putting Truth Back into Politics, that was written along with Dr. Gleb Sapersky. Uh, if we kind of go through maybe, you know, where you start in all of this, we love to be headline readers where you scroll through a feed and there's so much there that you read a headline and, and you think it's good or you read something and then you start to agree with that point of view and then you read more of that point of view and that, that point of view soaks in. How exactly do we look to even recognize what something is and whether or not you take it and say, yeah, no, that Gordon Lightfoot, unfortunately, sadly, has passed away, and here's how I know it to be true this time. Yes. So the the easy thing to do is simply fact-check. And, and you know, there's lots of great fact-check organizations out there. I like Snopes.com, S-N-O-P-E-S.com, but there's lots of them out there. The first step is to fact-check with one of these organizations, because they can tell you, hey, this is a hoax that's going around right off the bat. And if you simply do that, and if you've seen this on social media, then go back and tell the person who sent it, hey, this is misinformation. Take down your post. Then you're not only keeping yourself safe, you're going back up the chain and you're preventing your friends and your colleagues from passing on fake news. The second thing that's an easy thing is take a look at the post. If it's like from a reputable news source, uh, whether the, uh, uh, the, the, the Globe and Mail or the, the, the Washington Post, it'll say, it'll look like the newspaper. But if it's something like just plain that has People magazine on it, then a picture that's obviously separate, that's when you should start to be suspicious. There's an old quote about Donald Trump saying that he could shoot somebody and 
uh, in Times Square and nobody would, would mind. It was supposedly in a People magazine. That's not, that's fake. If you go and look at any of those posts, it's clear that that's not really a People magazine product that's being posted around. But you have to start no have to start recognizing people are out there doing this deliberately as their job, and get smart. Don't we're be naive. Talking, we're talking with Tim Ward. Yeah, don't be naive. He is the co-owner of Intermedia Communications Training and the co-author of the Master Communicators Handbook. But we're talking about another book co-written by Doctor or with Doctor Gleb Sapersky, which is Pro Truth: A Practical Plan for Putting Truth Back into Politics. There's a pledge that comes in with all of this. Tell us about the pledge. It is one of the best things for changing your behavior on social media when you pass it around for changing the behavior of your friends and networks. If it's 12 simple behaviors that you can take that you, by signing the pledge, agree to follow, which are things like fact-checking, not only not passing on misinformation, but telling others to not pass it on and then praising others when they correct their own mistakes. Because often when people, when our friends and networks, when they post stuff that's wrong, they don't do it on purpose. They do it by accident. So if somebody corrects themselves, you should praise them for valuing the truth. Those are just some of these 12 behaviors. All of them are at www.protruthpledge.org. And I would urge not only your listeners, um, but for them to urge their friends, especially south of the border in the United States, where although I'm Canadian, that's where I live now. Man, with this election season coming up, it's like social media uh, is passing out disinformation like it's the flu season for politics. Do, your, do what you can for your friends south of the border. Help them protect themselves better by sharing the pro-truth pledge with your American friends. And it's essentially looking at where is this source coming from. But I like the idea of saying to somebody, hey, you know what, I, I looked that up. That's, that's not a thing. And we know how powerful word of mouth is. If you've got somebody that you know who's willing to say, yeah, I, here, you want the, the evidence on that, that thing that you were circulating? Yeah, here it is. That, that would make a big difference. And do you feel that that's being done at all now, or is that, is that something that could be done a whole lot more? Oh, yeah. This is what the Pro-Truth Pledge is all about. There's only over 11,000 people have signed it so far, including 1,000 elected um, office holders. And I have to say myself, when I signed it, I noticed my behavior was changing. There's times when I see, see something on my social media and I think, oh, I should pass that along. And then I'm like, oh, but I signed the pledge. I've got to fact check it first. And a simple fact check has actually stopped me from sharing this information. Even more, sometimes friends of mine who have a very different political views than I do, they said, hey, I thought you signed that pledge. Look at this thing you just posted. I go back, I take another look at it, and sometimes I've seen I've been too hasty. I promise to correct it, and I do. Then I thank the person for pointing out that I made a mistake, and it helps them value truth more, too. Tim Ward, co-author of Pro-Truth, A Practical Plan for Putting the Truth Back into Politics. Tim, this has been a fantastic conversation, and we'll see what does happen. It'll be interesting to see where our world sits, how we're consuming information, how it's being interpreted, what's being done with it in, I'd, I'd love to say 10 years from now, but it's probably more like two years from now we might see something that is radically different from what we have. Yeah, let's let's uh, let's hope we can all get stronger. I'll get better at discerning truth from deliberate misinformation. Thank you so much, Mike, for spreading the word.
Tim, thank you for the time. Keep safe. You too. Bye. That's Tim Ward, co-author of Pro-Truth, A Practical Plan for Putting Truth Back into Politics. And the idea that, yeah, we, we've, we have a responsibility to look at something and say, where does that come from before you send it off? You just do. And how many of us actually take that responsibility? It's, it's something that we talk a lot about in the way that we have information go out. You can have your own Twitter feed or Facebook page, which is going to have your own opinions and things like that, and it'll have conversations back and forth and threads. But in terms of a factual piece of information coming out from Global News Radio, 980 CFPL, that is vetted. That is checked. I've talked about what we go through before, where even if I'm writing a London Knights story, I will send that off. I have to. It doesn't. I can't just hit post. I can't write a story and hit post. That does. That's not the way it happens. Even if it's a London Knights story about a game that ended 5-4 and I was at the game and nobody else who will be looking at this was at the game, I can't hit post and put that up. That is not allowed. Why is that? Because it has to be vetted. It has to be fact-checked. And if I have a fact in there that they're saying, you know, are you are you sure about this? Where did you get that from? Or who said that? That's usually more so of what it's like. Who who are you attributing that to? You have to give that that statement right there. You have, you have to give that a voice. You can't just say that. They'll send that back, and I have to go and get that source and get their approval to put their name in it, and then it gets put up. And that's for something as simple as a hockey story. It goes to the same lengths for news and information. This month that we are in right now, as much as it is a month filled with all kinds of uncertainty, just like last month and the other month, it is the other month before, what was that, July? Is that how far back we're going? It is Alopecia Arietta Awareness Month. And this is something that we maybe don't know an awful lot about. It doesn't get the same kind of recognition that other things might get. But we're going to take some time and learn about it right now. Because joining us is Anthony Gilding, who is the Science Outreach and Communication Lead with the Canadian Alopecia Arietta Foundation. Anthony, thanks so much for being here. Thank you for having me. Anthony, let's lay it all out. Alopecia, people may know what that is if they have a friend or a family member who might have it. Let's just talk about what happens when someone suffers from alopecia areata. Sure. So there's a lot of different types of alopecia, but alopecia areata is one of them. And so essentially it is an autoimmune condition where for reasons that we still don't fully understand, the immune system attacks your hair follicles. And so when that happens, your hair falls out. Uh, it's different for everyone. Some people lose just a couple of patches of hair. Some people lose all of the hair on their head. And some people lose all of the hair on their body. Now, in terms of this being, uh, you know, or the reason for this happening, what do we know right now? Is it, you mentioned autoimmune disease. Do we know how it develops in someone? So that's something that researchers are still trying to figure out. What we know up to this point is that for whatever reason, the cells in our hair follicles give off this signal that tells the immune system to attack. So it tells it, 
that something is wrong with the hair follicle and it's not supposed to be there. And so the immune system attacks. And when that happens, it causes inflammation that makes the hair fall out. And in alopecia areata specifically, it's not permanent. So there is always the chance that the hair could grow back. But we don't really understand how to make that happen yet. Now, in other forms of alopecia, it can be permanent, correct? Exactly. So there are scarring alopecias. Alopecia areata is not one of them. But with scarring alopecias, it is permanent. So once you lose the hair, you can't get it back. And if we look at what that means for somebody, I mean, you've just described it. Think about it. Think about one day having your hair start to fall out, and it doesn't stop until every hair on your body has fallen out. What are the implications that people with alopecia tend to deal with? Well, that's exactly it. I think, you know, a lot of us associate our identity with how we look. And so if one day we start to lose that hair, we start to feel like we're losing our identity. We don't know what to do about that. Um, and so that's when I think that getting involved with CANAP is great because all of us on CANAP either have alopecia areata ourselves or we're directly related to someone who does. And so we know exactly what it feels like and we have sort of the, the insight to guide you along your own journey. And I think a lot of it is just introspection. So once you lose that part of your physical identity that you're used to, you have to try and figure out well, what is it that makes me me? And getting involved with CANAP really helps you do that. Anthony Gilding joining us. Science Outreach and Communication Lead with the Canadian Alopecia Areata Foundation, which is one form of alopecia, as Anthony has outlined. Typically, how quickly does this happen, where you begin to lose hair, and then if you suffer from, let's say, a form of alopecia that takes all of your hair away, how long Mm -hmm. can it be before all of your hair has fallen out? You know, it really depends on the person. So for me, it started with one, uh, one small bald spot, and over a couple months, it progressed to what we call alopecia universalis. So that's losing all of your hair. For some people, it's a matter of days. It could be a matter of weeks. It really depends on the person. What I can say is that, typically speaking, it is rapid in everyone. Okay. And yeah. in terms of a treatment, where does the research sit in terms of trying to find something that may one day be able to prevent or may one day be able to reverse this? Yeah, so right now we're kind of stuck because all of the treatments that we have are repurposed. And so there are two major classes of treatments. We have treatments that aim to target the inflammation caused by the hair loss. That's typically uh, corticosteroids. And then we have treatments that are aimed at suppressing the entire immune system as a whole. And so those are immunosuppressants. But what's unfavorable about those treatments is that they're very broad. We don't have anything yet that can target the specific processes occurring in alopecia areata. A lot of the research now is looking at something called JAK inhibitors, which is uh, a medication that targets a very specific pathway in the immune system. But in short, we don't have a cure yet, and we don't really have a treatment that could prevent it or a long-term sustainable treatment. If anybody wanted to help out by way of donation or learn more, Anthony, where should they go? So they can go to the CANAP website, canap.org. We are always looking for donations. I mean, the problem is with alopecia areata, it only affects 1% to 2% of the population. So research funding is very hard to come by. Um, and so we really do rely on those external donations. Anything counts, you know, whether it's $5, $50, $500, it, it means a lot. 
Well, we really appreciate you talking about this with us. And can you spell out CANAP for us just so that we can get the .org part? Sure. So it's C-A-N-A-A-S dot org. Okay. Excellent. Anthony, thank you so much for the time today. Please stay safe. Thank you for having me. You too. That is Anthony Gilding, Science Outreach and Communication Lead with the Canadian Alopecia Areata Foundation. You've been listening to the London Live Podcast. Catch the show live on weekdays from 1 to 3.